0: Welcome to episode 7 of season 2, uh, the Belfry Hockey Podcast featuring concepts in the Belfry Offense book. Now, on page 100 of the book, what I talk about on page 100 is, well, it's actually 100, page 101. I talk about a most misleading stat that comes up in broadcasts, which is time on stick. And you'll see them, you know, go through the on-stick, like, after each period, how long, you know, Matt Barzell had the puck on a stick. And that always irritates me because it's not really a, it's not really a relevant stat, really, at all. Uh, what does matter for me is how frequently the player is getting the puck. So how long you have it on your stick is not as important to me as how many times you get it. And how many times you get it is not as important to me as how many times you get it off the pass. So the more sophisticated the player is in their offensive understanding, the more frequently they're going to get the puck in good areas with timing, with speed, off the pass. That's that's what I'm interested in. And so when I was breaking down... Um, on-stick possession and and what really matters, what I want is game influence. So I want the puck to come through the player and so that the puck is coming into them and then they're making decisions. So er, years ago I called it spider hockey, which is like to simulate a spider web and have the spider in the middle of the web, but you have all these like offshoots and and that, Everything is coming to the middle. So It'll look like a spider web. When you look at a player and how often they get the puck and how much they get it off the pass, then what happens is there's certain patterns that come through. And what's interesting to study is the patterns of how they get the puck and what types of things that they do before they get the puck. ...to get the puck in that space. So how do they preserve space? How do they elongate the passing lane? How do they communicate with the non-puck carrier? How in the doing the same things and going through the same patterns over and over again... ...how much does that influence how frequently you get the puck? So if you just are random... This is why players who are not habit-based really struggle... And they struggle offensively because they don't do the same things over and over and over again. And that's what is the characteristic of the best players. They do the same things. They train the people around them to understand where they're going to be. And that's how that's a, a major contributor as to why they get the puck. If you're just chasing the puck all over the place, that's why loose puck players, who pri- players who primarily get the puck off of loose pucks, and that's how they read the game, those players are going to really struggle to create legit offense when it really matters. Because it just doesn't work like that. Offense is, the best offense comes off the pass. And yeah, you can force a turnover, but what happens after a forced turnover? You force a turnover, you make a play, then the guy maybe makes one more play, and now the guy's shooting at an empty net, or or that's where the scoring chance comes from. It's not to say that you're not going to force turnovers. It's not to say that you're not going to win lose, pucks. Of course, you're going to do that. It's the percentage of it. So, a top player in the NHL is working off of between 75 and 85 percent of their pass of their puck touches are coming off the pass. To the degree that you're not a top player, is the degree that that percentage flips, and so. You know, if you're trying to make a living off of loose pucks, uh, you're not going to generate a lot of offense. You're going to have to become, it's much more of a defensive play because the problem with loose pucks as it relates to generating offense is it's the first puck touch. So the way it should work is a loose puck or forced turnover happens, you win that puck. Once you get that puck, you make a play that that improves the conditions of the play for the next puck care, puck carrier. So, what happens to a lot of players when they are constantly in loose puck battles is they contribute to the next puck being also a battle. So they get there, they get to the corner, they're you know all in on trying to win this puck. Their sh- shoulders, body are all facing the glass. Now they win the puck, they just chip it up the, up or down the boards, one way or the other. So now the next guy, that's a loose puck now. So they've won a loose puck only to create a loose puck. Now we got to go win that puck, and that again is on the wall. And now the next guy's got to get there and try to win that puck. So this is more like minute munching where you're just killing time, but the puck is getting bounced around into chains of board battles. If, you wanna, if, if the first puck touch you're going to get is loose or forced, turnover, fair enough, what that has to be is you then have to win that puck and make a play to somebody who has space to move. They can get it off the pass. So you win a loose puck, give it to someone off the pass where it's a proper pass, not a send down the wall and hope the guy skates onto it. No, a pass to someone. Now when you do that you're improving the conditions of the puck, now that player has a chance to do something where they can make a play off the pass. Now, you get off the wall, you relocate to a good area, you get the puck back when off the pass. So now you get the puck off the pass, that's different. And then now, you have better conditions. The conditions surrounding that puck are probably going to be much more enhanced than the first puck. Conditions meaning time, space, opportunity to attack, the fact you got it off the pass, all that. That's what matters. And so then then you make a play, and then you relocate again, and then you get the third. Now when you get it the third time, and the third time is again off the pass, the conditions surrounding that puck for offense are remarkably better. And that's what that's what really really matters. And so as a player, you want to have so in that case, that one scenario, you touch the puck three times, one was a loose puck and two were off the pass. So that's that's pretty reasonable. That's 66% of the pucks that you're getting are now off the pass. Now you get a few more off the pass, next thing you know you're up at 75, 80, you're now in an elite puck. So you, you win a loose puck or you you uh, you steal a puck, but then you convert that into three more pucks off the pass. That's... That's really what it is. Now, so because I don't want to leave an impression that only getting pucks off the pass is what you want and you're not going to engage in loose puck battles or winning pucks because that's also not true. You need to do that. It's just the percentage of pucks. So, you know, if, if a player touches the puck 40 times even strength, they should really have 10 loose pucks forced turnovers and 30 off the pass. That's what it sh- That's what that profile should look like if they're elite. Now if you touch the puck 40 times even strength in a hockey game you are in offensive rhythm and that's what I mean when I go back to on stick possession. In order to get a large number a large number in on stick possession what usually has to happen is you need to have the puck on your stick for longer durations which is counterintuitive to real offense, because now you're carrying the puck, the longer you're carrying the puck, the more it's difficult for the puck to now move with pace. The puck moves, the, the game is played at the pace of the puck, so when you get it and you skate it for a long, dur- long duration, you're slowing the game down. No matter how fast you are, you're slowing the game down. Now, if you're slowing the game down to then make a play off the pass that then speeds it up again, well that's elite too right so there's you got to be careful like it, it, there's there's levels to this and that's what i was trying to communicate in that through the broadcast i would rather see how often the player touches the puck and then if you really look at how how the player influences the influences the play through their shift now that's a whole other level so what do i mean by that so I can influence the puck without touching the puck. I can do it through my positioning. I can do it through angles. I can do it through the options that you have as a puck carrier. I can influence where the puck goes. So I can control the shift. I can control the puck without having to touch the puck. And that's a big distinction. And I think we sometimes... We don't, we don't give that as much credit as what it deserves because there is a lot of guys who really control the game, and yet they're not going to show up on puck touches like, or uh, a durations of puck. They're not going to have the puck on their stick for a minute and five seconds. they're just, That's not in the game. They're going to have it maybe 40, 45 seconds, but they're going to touch it 30 times, even strength. And that's impact the game. And then because they've done that, they're also forcing pucks back to us because they they take good angles, forcing the puck carrier to hurry, they miss a pass. Now we're getting the puck, or they, they get forced into small area, they overhandle a puck, we're able to get there, get a contact, take away, and away we go. They're influencing, or they you know, you look like you want to try to come one way. Uh, that play's not there now. You have to go back. So, like, if you looked at a, a defenseman, for example, who can control the game without ever without touching the puck in the shift, think about the offensive zone. The other team gets a puck. They bump it to their to the D partner behind the net. D partner comes around the net and they look to the winger. When they look to the winger, the weak side D has come down, surfed down, and they've taken that option away. So now the puck carrier comes up. They take a look. That option's not there. They don't have the the, uh, the play started on the other side of the ice. The other people haven't come across enough. Not really options through the middle of the ice. Puck carrier's now stuck. Play, the, the RF2 is closing down the space on them. Now they're stuck. What do they do? Turn back. Now they turn back. Where are they turning? Turning back into small space. They're Now they're initiating basically our forecheck. And now they're under a lot of pressure to try to break out. Do you know how many times that happens? It happens a ton. And the, the guy, that the, the defenseman, is not getting credit for that play. But they're essentially controlling the shift. You can't exit the way you want to because defensively we're shutting that down. And so uh, now let's say the, the play gets turned back. We four check. Push the player into the wall. F2 picks up the puck. F2 gets it. Kicks it up to the top to Who? That's right, the defenseman who was the weak side defenseman who's now the strong side D on that side who has started this whole play. Now they get it, pass it to their partner, we change sides, and now we're generating offense. That's controlling shifts. And you can control it in a multitude of different ways. You don't have to have the puck on your stick to be controlling the shift. And there's a lot of different ways people can control the shift, and I think we need to look at all of them and give credit where credit's due so that we can truly understand who's impacting winning. Those kids, there's, there's certain things that happen that influence winning. Getting pucks back, influencing the play like I just talked about, that's also getting pucks back. Once you get it, how many times are you getting it off the pass? So that's your availability, the trust that your teammate has in you, their, your overall habits, all of that. And then, if the, for example, if I get the puck off the pass and I make a puck, so if you give me the puck off the pass and then I make a good play with it or I give it back to you, what are you going to do? The ne- what are you going to be inclined to do the next time? Well, you're going to be inclined to give me the puck because you know I'm going to do something with it. But if you give me the puck off the pass and I degrade the puck by putting it in a bad area, I get the puck, the puck turns over, I don't do what I need to do with it, you're going to be less inclined to give me the puck. And so now the puck doesn't move because you're going to take one look. And we we talked about this as best play available. These are factors. And when kids are growing up, they do this all the time. They make all these decisions based on what they think you're going to do with the puck. They're like, take a look. They're like, ah, that's Tommy. I'm not passing him. Because Tommy doesn't do nothing with the puck, so I'm not doing that. I'm better off to keep it myself. So then they keep it themselves, and they look terrible because they, Tommy's wide open, passing the puck. Whether Tommy can do something with it or not is irrelevant. You need to move the puck there. Then it's up to Tommy to learn how to improve the conditions. But Tommy can never learn that because the puck carrier won't pass from the puck and so we allow all this to happen. We, we allow it all to happen. And one kid's carrying the puck, and that's not making them any better. And the kid that should get it, they're not getting it. They're not learning how to improve the conditions of the puck. So nobody's getting better in that sense. So, and, and everyone kind of loses a bit of confidence as it goes along with the puck. The idea is to have the tide rise all the boats together. And this is a way you do it. So redefining what controlling a shift actually is and crediting players who force someone to turn back or they come up and they look for an option and the play's not there. Oh, you ever see a, a strong side defenseman? So strong side defenseman on the other team's breakout, they attach to your winger. You take a look. You look, okay, winger's not there. Okay, now I'm going to go to the center. So as soon as you pick your head up to look to the center, the winger or the, the defenseman slide comes off the winger and moves now to the middle of the ice. So now you move the puck to the center, who's there? That D. And they're there for it. Uh, as you touch it, they're there to contest the play, or you miss the pass, or you're under pressure, and they actually you actually pass it to the defenseman in the middle. That's high-level understanding of how to control a shift and control where the puck goes. And I think that those things matter more than how long, you know, Matt Barzell had the puck on his stick. How long he has the puck on his stick is not relevant unless he's touching it 40 times even strength. Touches it 40 times even strength, that means he's a spider. Everything's coming through him and he's making all the decisions with the puck. And then, you know, he ends the night with a three-point night. Yeah, that's a good night. He's in rhythm. And that's the other piece that I want to talk about as it relates to this. Having the puck on your stick for long durations of time can reduce rhythm. And what I mean by that is it's get it, move it, get it back, move it, get it back, move it, get it back. That's a rhythm. And you get it every, you know, I had a stat that I, I had basically invented years ago, which was... To calculate the frequency of puck touch. So I would take the amount of time, even strength time on ice, and I would divide that into the number of puck touches, and that would tell me the puck frequency. So players touching the puck every, you know, 12.8 seconds. So now I know that, or puck touch, or the players touching the puck once every 60 seconds. Or the players touching the puck one every 80 seconds. Okay, well, if every shift is, say, 35 seconds and you're touching the puck every 60 seconds, that tells me you're getting an average of one puck touch every two shifts. Now, you get another guy who's touching the puck every, you know, 15 seconds. while he's getting two puck touches every single shift. Who's in better offensive rhythm? That's... and, And that's what I'm talking about. And... Uh, how and then if you work off that 80 20 rule, twenty percent of your puck touches are loose pucks and forced turnovers, and eighty percent are off the pass, you are elite. That's how that's that's what it, that's what it looks like. That's when you study it, that's what it comes out to. And so if you're a developing player or you're developing players, try looking at it through that lens and see what that does because it once you see it, You won't be able to unsee it. And then you can start to see how there are some really good players who are not elite because they don't understand this stuff. They get the puck once. They carry it for long durations of time. But really, when they finish the game, they have 15 puck touches and they had it for a minute. And they created a couple of scoring chances for themselves and maybe a rebound for someone else. It's not really elite. I'd rather see the guy who's not touching it maybe as much because the other problem is the lower the level that you play, the more the puck is loose. There's not as many plays happening because, you know, people are, there's a lot of puck hogs. There's a lot of players that don't know how to move the puck. They're not encouraged to do it. They, they're making executive decisions as to who to pass to based on their thoughts of who's good and who's not. All that bullshit is happening and so that all reduces their ability to really understand true offense. And when you, where, where this really, really comes to light is when you watch the growth and development of younger players on both the male and the female side. So on the male side, the reality that I have to move the puck comes a lot sooner for them because they're going to get hit hard. And if they overhandle the puck, uh, they're going to get hit. And so they start to learn, like, there's some places I might be able to hold on to it. Other places I probably should already know what I want to do and move it. They're taking greater stock of who's around them because they don't want to get hit. All of that. On the female side, you kind of get away with it. There's a lot of loose... Wave with it a lot longer because there's a lot more loose pucks available. So there's a defenseman that can get a, a... a puck, because so many pucks are getting dumped in, so many pucks are loose, there's a lot of missed passes on the rush, the rush is unsophisticated, so one player is getting it, they get you know knocked off the puck, now the puck is loose, now you get that player, they get it, they round the net, and up they go, all the way down the ice, and they do that 10, 12, 15 times a night they never really have to move it they just go from one end to the other all the time, you can do that for a large percentage of your career in women's hockey if you're good. If you're a good skater and you have a good puck, you, as a defenseman, you can do it literally all night. And that is precluding to what elite offense really is. And every kid is now falling down because they stop moving, they stop playing, and that kid's not getting the puck that number of times that they need it because the puck is not moving. So they get... It's not an issue of their development, necessarily. It's that they don't get a chance to see what elite hockey really is. They never get a chance to play it at its highest level of expression because they don't understand this whole concept of how the puck should move. And if they worked off that 80-20 rule and they were able to see the puck move. Like, now you're moving off the puck, and you're getting pucks with off the pass, and then you're moving, it. and people around you are moving. Like, it's a whole... That's a whole other world. And they just don't get access to seeing that. It's frustrating to see, because they're capable of it. And so I think that's where, on the boys' side, they still have the same issues. They still have that kid I just talked about. They're, that kid's there. That's, that's happening. It's just that... For the majority of the players, it comes that reality comes sooner that they have to move it. So the collective movement of the puck is much better. Um, and that's so they get a chance, a little bit of insight, more insight to see how that the sophistication of offense really could be. It's there to be learned. It's there to be understood. We just need more people who, are, who can see it see the game that way, and start to influence how players are are expressing the game. So I think that that, that broadcast piece is really it's triggering for me because it's a way of suppressing real offense. It's a way of—and and what I'd rather see is how frequently the player got the puck and how they got the puck. That is what's going to be more telling— as to why that player is elite and why they're influencing the outcome of the game, because they're the spider, they're in rhythm, they feel good, the puck is coming through them, they're uh, they have an offensive flow to their game because they're that's what that's what being on is, and that's the difference, and so. Uh, so I, I love that topic and I like I literally in the book was only able to touch on it for a couple of pages. So that's why I love this forum because now I can really dig into it, and really talk about what I really like what, I, what where, where it really matters and what the difference is. And what I'm hopeful of is that we get more and more kids and coaches to get that insight into that real sophistication of when offense is played at a really high level with that offense, collective offense. There's a lot of great individual players, but there's not enough collective offense where people really can play with each other. And that comes back to some of these ideas. And once these ideas are understood, you're starting to build a platform to where it's possible to understand how to play like that.